Welcome back to All You Crimeaholics. It's your girl, Holly, and I am so excited to talk about today's case. Today's case is one that was just recently solved, and the reason why I'm so excited to talk about it is because I feel that these cases can give hope to families who had their loved one taken and the case wasn't solved quickly. Today's case went unsolved for nine years, and while that is nine years too long, the family will now finally get justice for their loved one. It's also a reminder that though we don't always see the work that authorities are doing for cases, they are keeping these cases fresh in their mind and still diligently working on them behind the scenes. So without further ado, let's get into the case of the murder of Faith Hedgepeth. Faith Hedgepeth was born on September 26, 1992, to her parents, Ronald and Connie Hedgepeth. She was born in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, and Faith was the baby of the family with three older siblings named Chadwick, Caleb, and Rolanda. When Faith was born, Rolanda was 18 years old, and though she was a big sister to Faith, she also had a very large part of her life almost in a motherly way. She was a part of the Halua Saponi Indian tribe, and Warren County, where she was born, is part of the tribe's traditional territory. According to the Wikipedia on the tribe, the Halua Saponi tribe has roughly 4,000 enrolled citizens. The large majority of those in this tribe reside in North Carolina. A year after Faith was born, her parents divorced, and her father moved to a town called Hickory in North Carolina. Even though her parents divorced, growing up, Faith spent time with both of her parents and was very close with her father. Faith was described as just a wonderful and lovely young woman, both inside and out. She was known for her heart of gold, and she would befriend everyone she came into contact with. She just had this warm and welcoming air about herself, and people just enjoyed being around her. She had a beautiful and infectious smile and a bubbly personality. Overall, she was just a complete joy to be around and had many friends and, of course, family that adored her. Faith was a member of the Mount Bethel Baptist Church, and she had a very solid relationship with God. She was a big part of her church community, including being in the youth choir. From the time that she was a small child up until she was murdered, everything that Faith did, she strived to be the best and to achieve excellence. Now, I'm going to just go ahead and read off some of this young lady's accomplishments because they are very admirable. Um, She is absolutely inspiring. But Faith was a member of the National Honor Society, Project Seed at Duke University, Project Uplift, Camp Carolina, Summer Bridge and Renaissance, all at the UNC Chapel Hill, Rising Star Tutors, Native American Student Association, Youth Summit Committee, she was a cheerleader, and many other things. She was also awarded a full-ride scholarship through the Gates Millennium Scholars. 
Being that she excelled in school, it was no surprise that Faith literally had her pick of which school she wanted to attend for college. But she had always dreamed of going to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill which she easily got accepted into due to her outstanding grades and all of her amazing achievements. Faith absolutely loved children, and she dreamed to work with children and somehow make a positive impact on youth in her community. Faith had dreamed of either becoming a pediatrician or an elementary school teacher. Not only that, but Faith was striving to be the first person in her family to graduate college. She was just a very ambitious young woman with many hopes and dreams that were stripped away from her far too soon. When Faith first started college, everything went smoothly for her, and as always, she was excelling in school and she had a great social circle of friends. But in the spring of 2012, Faith decided that she was going to take a semester off from school before getting back into classes in the fall. Despite taking a short stint off from school, Faith did stay in the Chapel Hill area where she lived in an off-campus apartment complex called Hawthorne at the View. Faith lived in this apartment with a roommate and good friend named Karina Rosario. Karina and Faith met in their freshman year of college, and the two of them really hit it off and became fast friends, and then obviously eventually got this apartment together. Now, Karina had a boyfriend named Eric Jones, and Eric was trying to pursue a career in the music industry, and he lived in an apartment of his own that was not far from where the girls lived. But as a lot of relationships go, Eric spent a large majority of his time at Karina and Faith's apartment instead of his own, and it was almost like he practically lived there for a time. Now, the relationship between Karina and Eric was a rocky one that included a lot of arguments that escalated to physical altercations. At some point, Faith actually drove Karina to the courthouse to file a protective order against Eric because things had just become so toxic between the couple. This protective order was to keep Eric away from the apartment, and though Faith wasn't the one filing this order, he blamed Faith for a lot of it. He was under the impression that somehow Faith influenced Karina to stand her ground, and in his eyes, Faith was the reason that he and Karina had this wedge that was driving them apart. So he really started to harbor a lot of hate and resentment towards Faith. In the fall of 2012, Faith started her classes back up again and was in her junior year of college. Things were going as smooth as ever for Faith. On Thursday, September 6, 2012, around 5.45 p.m., Faith was at a sorority event for the Alpha Pi Omega, and this event was actually a part of the sorority's rush week. Now, for those who don't know what a rush week is, and if I'm being quite honest, I myself didn't because I wasn't a part of a sorority in college, but apparently rush week is like a week-long recruitment week where the sororities recruit students to their organizations. 
Rush week takes place usually at the beginning of the school year, and from what I've gathered is that your life completely revolves around rush week, and it's filled with like a ton of craziness for the sororities and fraternities on campus. So Faith arrives at this event at 5.45 p.m., but she hadn't planned to stay very long because she was planning on going to the library on campus to work on a history paper. At around 7.15 p.m., Faith left the sorority event to go to the library. Karina met up at the library with her, and the two studied together and worked on homework at the library until around 11.30 p.m., So, as I said earlier, Faith was extremely close with her father, and she would always tell him about her day and things that were going on and so on. So, while she was at the library studying, she was also texting with her father, Ronald, and just kind of giving him the rundown of the events that was taking place for Rush Week, and just was kind of filling him in on the happenings of the sorority and telling him how she had really hoped that she would get a spot in the Alpha Pi Omega sorority. Ronald said that when he spoke with Faith, that she seemed fine and that nothing was out of the ordinary. As I said, Karina and Faith left the library at around 11.30 p.m., and the two walked back to their apartment. They got back to their apartment sometime around midnight and decided that they weren't really ready for bed, and so they both felt pretty awake. So they decided that they were going to go to a club that was near the campus that was called The Thrill. This club was allegedly known for letting people under the age of 21 in to party, and they also allowed them to drink. This club is also now closed, and I'm not sure if that's due to them getting into trouble for this or if they just shut down on their own, but this was a popular spot for college students to go and hang out back in 2012. After getting ready at the apartment, Karina and Faith arrived at the Thrill at 12.40 a.m., so early September 7th, 2012. About an hour and a half after being there, Karina started to feel sick, so the girls at that point said that they should probably just call it a night and head home. Surveillance footage from the club captured Faith and her roommate Karina leaving the thrill at 2.06 a.m. and heading in the direction of their apartment. They arrived back to their apartment around 3 a.m., After getting back home, Faith hopped on Facebook and was scrolling her feed before sending a text message at 3.40 a.m. to a guy named Brandon Edwards. Now, I'm not really sure, but it is rumored that Karina had dated Brandon for some time, but honestly, that's not really a super important part of this story, but that's just what it was said. But in this text message, Faith had said, quote, Hey, B, can you come over here, please? Karina needs you more than you know. Please let her know you care, end quote. After this text message went out, Faith didn't use her phone again, so it is assumed that she went to sleep. At 4.16 a.m., Brandon texted her back and asked, who is this? So I'm assuming that he didn't have her number and maybe Faith had gotten the number from Karina to text him. Now, According to ABC News, Karina's phone records showed that she was also trying to call Brandon around the same time that Faith had texted him, but he didn't answer her either, which is why I'm kind of assuming that maybe Faith had gotten the number from Karina and they were kind of like working on this together. And I'm also not sure if like 
by this time in the morning, Karina was beginning to feel better or something or why exactly she was trying to contact people. But after Brandon didn't answer, she called a Chapel Hill soccer player named Jordan McCrary. Jordan answered, and again, according to ABC News, he came and picked Karina up at the apartment at 4.25 a.m., and she got into his car, and then they left to go to his apartment. When Karina left her apartment with Jordan, she did not lock the front door of the apartment, and she was under the impression that Faith was in bed in her room. Karina and Jordan got back to his apartment just a few minutes later, and she stayed there until about 10.30 a.m. Before leaving his apartment later that morning, Karina tried to call Faith multiple times to see if she could come and pick her up, but Faith didn't answer her phone. When Karina couldn't get in touch with Faith, she reached out to another friend named Marisol, asking if she could come and pick her up and take her back to her apartment, which Marisol agreed. Marisol and Karina got back to the apartment complex at around 11 a.m. and the girls headed up to the second floor apartment that Faith and Karina had shared. When they walked into the apartment, Karina started calling out for Faith, letting her know that she was home, but once more, Faith didn't reply. Which this was odd for Karina because she knew that Faith had to have been home because when they pulled into the apartment complex, she saw Faith's car in the parking lot. So Karina went to Faith's door and just walked in, and that is when she found a horrible, horrible scene. Karina found Faith's body hanging off the edge of the bed over a pool of blood partially nude and wrapped in a comforter. There was blood spatter throughout the entire room and on her bed where the pillow may have been. Karina and Marisol immediately called 911 at 11.01 a.m. When authorities and first responders arrived on scene, there was nothing that they could do to save Faith. She was already deceased. Faith's shirt had been pulled over her head and she had no clothes on from the waist down. In the center of Faith's bed, there was a white paper bag, which was from a restaurant called Time Out, which is a popular restaurant in Chapel Hill. Written on this bag, they found the words, quote, I'm not stupid, bitch, jealous, end quote. The words were written in big letters, and it was not in any kind of neat handwriting. It was very much chicken scratch, kind of like a scribble. A forensic handwriting expert would later examine this note, and she would determine that the note looked extremely clean. There was not a single drop of blood on this paper bag, which was odd considering how bloody the crime scene was. The forensic expert believes that the note was either written outside of the room or outside of the apartment and then taken into her room and placed where it was found. The expert also determined that whomever wrote this note, it was done with their non-dominant hand. So it led them to believe that perhaps this person was trying to disguise their handwriting so they wouldn't easily be identified. After the autopsy was performed on Faith, it was determined that she had died from blunt force trauma to the head. It was assumed that Faith had been bludgeoned to death with an empty alcohol bottle that was found covered in blood in her room. Faith also had many other contusions, abrasions, and bruising all over her body. 
They were also able to obtain a semen sample from Faith's body to develop a DNA profile of her killer. Authorities ran the DNA through the database, but unfortunately, the killer's DNA wasn't already in their database, meaning that they had never been arrested and had their sample taken during that time. Investigators made sure to do a thorough sweep of the apartment and found that the killer's DNA was also on that paper bag that was found with the note written on it, as well as on that empty alcohol bottle that they believed was used to kill Faith. Now, from what I found was that after the autopsy was completed, Faith's family didn't actually get those results for two whole years which is very unfortunate that they had to go on with their lives for two years before they actually knew what had happened to their daughter. And while this may seem absolutely crazy to some people, this isn't uncommon for families to have to wait some time before these results are released, due to it being an open and ongoing investigation. But this obviously made her family upset, and rightfully so. So, As I said at the beginning of this episode, this case wasn't solved for nine years, and it wasn't solved until more recently, so authorities had their work cut out for them when it came to trying to figure out who did this to Faith. And not surprising, one of the first people that they looked into was Karina's ex-boyfriend, Eric, that I talked about earlier, who had that resentment and anger towards Faith. It kind of seemed plausible that he would be the one to attack her after he was angry over the protective order and that he felt Faith had something to do with it. And the hateful and angry note that was left on the paper bag also seemed like maybe there was a connection there. Even though Eric had all of this anger at the time over the protective order, when he did an interview with the police, he described Faith as, quote, the sweetest person in the world. If you needed her and she could do it, she was there, end quote. And that was strange that this guy was saying things when it was known how badly he disliked Faith. Also, oddly enough, the day before Faith was murdered and the day of the murder, Eric had some super interesting posts he had made on social media. One thing he posted was, quote, Dear Lord, forgive me for all my sins and the sins I may commit today. Protect me from the girls that don't deserve me and the ones who wish me dead today, end quote. On the evening of Thursday, September 6, he also texted a friend asking for forgiveness for what he said he was about to do, which again, Faith was killed in the early morning hours of September 7th. So this is like less than 12 hours between when he texted said friend and when she was murdered. Now, With all of this stuff he's posting and saying to people, plus the fact that he had this anger towards Faith, authorities initially thought that this was going to be a slam dunk, easy peasy case. Surprisingly, though, he was extremely cooperative with the police and readily offered up his sample of DNA, which ultimately did not match the DNA that was found at the scene of the crime, and Eric was ruled out as being involved in Faith's murder. I was super surprised when researching this case to learn that Eric had done and said all of these things and that he was mad about Faith and then boom, he wasn't involved. I also thought that was going to be a slam dunk case here. It just seemed like the most likely scenario, but clearly it was not. 
After he was ruled out, the police were essentially back at square one trying to figure out who else could be involved. Authorities decided to try and retrace Faith's last steps from the night of the murder, and it took them to the thrill. There, they were able to go through the security footage from the club, and they were hoping that maybe that they can find someone on the video that seemed suspicious or like they were following Faith and Karina. They were able to identify several of the patrons that were seen talking to Karina and Faith that night, and they were able to request DNA samples from them, and again, all were not a match. Once more, authorities were left trying to figure out the next step to take and which leads to follow. Now, after the news spread about Faith's murder, the Chapel Hill Board of Trustees, the Halua Saponi tribe, and the management of the apartment complex where Faith lived all worked together to raise money for an award for information that would lead to an arrest. They raised $29,000. So from the get-go, Faith's family wasn't overly confident in the way that the investigation was going, and they had a lot of doubts about what was being done for the case. From my understanding, a lot of the family's frustration was due to them really kind of being left out of the loop and kind of in the dark about the findings of this case. As I said, they didn't know the results of her autopsy for two years, and on top of that, they didn't have any idea about the evidence that was found and collected. They didn't know about the paper bag. They didn't know about anything for two years later. And again, this is so frustrating for families, but things are withheld because it's an open investigation. But my heart breaks for the family because, again, two long, agonizing years, they had little information about the death of their beloved Faith. Her family also had some doubts and suspicions about Faith's roommate, Karina. They felt that she wasn't being 100% upfront and honest, and they also felt that her 911 call was suspicious. And apparently the reasoning they felt that this 911 call was suspicious was because Karina never once mentioned being with someone else inside the apartment. She never mentioned Marisol. And apparently the 911 operator was telling her that she didn't want Karina to be alone, so she was going to stay on the phone with her. And instead of telling the operator that she had someone with her, she said nothing. Also, one of the neighbors told authorities that she had ran into Marisol and Karina after they found Faith's body and that the girls' behavior to the neighbor seemed kind of suspicious as well. The neighbor said that Marisol seemed a little teary-eyed, but Karina showed no signs of emotion. And while I can see where someone would find that odd, everyone handles situations differently, and Karina very well could have just been in shock over finding her roommate dead. It would also come out eventually that Faith had left a very odd voicemail on a friend's phone on the early morning hours of September 7th, which again was the same day that she was killed. So this voicemail was left just hours before her death. And when people learned that Faith was murdered and that this voicemail was found, people freaked out thinking that this voicemail was from Faith's final moments and that she had accidentally pocket dialed her friend during a struggle for her life. But it was determined that that was not the case because this voicemail happened at 1.23 a.m. And if you remember from earlier, Faith and Karina were still at the club until 2.06 a.m. 
So this pocket dial was likely a result of whatever was going on at the club and was a complete accident. But in 2016, a voicemail expert examined this voicemail, and they believed that it was, in fact, Faith's final moments, and that they were certain that there was two males and at least one female present. He said that he could hear the female sounding angry and various other tidbits of the conversation happening. I did listen to this voicemail and Arlo West's breakdown of what he thinks he hears. Now, Arlo is an expert in voicemail pocket dials, and he has even helped with audio recordings in some murder cases that helped get convictions. And I will have the link to this video I watched in the description of this episode if you guys want to check it out for yourself. But in my opinion, I don't fully hear what Arlo thinks he hears. And while the voicemail said it was left at 1.23 a.m., it is believed that Faith was murdered after 4 a.m. sometime. Arlo says it was a glitch in the system that was known in the phones back in 2012. I know authorities did take his findings seriously, and they requested to get the information from him, but ultimately nothing ever came from this that I could find. Again, if you're interested in this, I'd love to hear your opinions and thoughts on this voicemail because it's been a huge thing that has been heavily debated in this case. So as I've said numerous times, this case went unsolved for years, and the police were under the assumption that whoever did this to Faith was likely someone that she knew or somewhat knew. During their process of investigating this case, authorities interviewed around 2,000 people, and of those 2,000 people interviewed, DNA was tested on 750 of those individuals. And unfortunately, none of those samples were matched with the killer. And I just want to say that though I know Faith's family felt a lot of frustration with the investigation and the authorities, it seemed like they were working hard behind the scenes to find out what happened. 2,000 people to interview and 750 swabs of DNA is a lot of work. And so I do believe that they were trying to solve this case for Faith. Now, in 2017, authorities came out and said that they were not sure if Faith had only one killer, and apparently they said that they had narrowed it down to a pool of persons of interest to about 10 people. Authorities continued to work on this, and one by one, each person they interviewed and tested were ruled out. Finally, after nine years and nine days of diligently working on this case, authorities finally got a DNA hit. Authorities used familial DNA to identify Faith's killer, which once more we are seeing more and more cases solved by this technology and I am so thankful for it. So they identified this man from his family members who did a DNA swab test and then submitted their DNA into a database that allows police agencies to access it. They compared the DNA from Faith's killer and compared it to the DNA in these databases and were able to come up with a partial match that helped them narrow down to a smaller pool of people. Now, how they finally got this man's DNA was when he was arrested a month prior to when he was arrested for Faith's murder for a DUI. And at the time of his arrest for that DUI, he had his DNA taken and put into the database and Finally, Faith's killer had a name. 
And that name was Miguel Salguero Oliveras. On September 16, 2021, the Chapel Hill Police Department officially arrested him and charged him with the murder of Faith Hedgepeth. At the time of his arrest, Miguel was 28 years old, so when he committed the murder, he was 19 years old, which was the same age as Faith. Police have yet to release how Miguel was connected to Faith, if at all, and there really isn't a ton of information that is out there yet due to the trial still pending. CBS 17 reported on September 6th of this year, so 2022, that there is no trial date yet for Miguel, but her family is hopeful that justice will be served. A decade after Faith's murder, her family wants her to be remembered for who she was and not what happened to her. Her legacy lives on through the Faith Smile Scholarship, which was started by her family and funded through donations. This scholarship is for Indigenous women pursuing higher education. Two $1,000 scholarships are awarded each year on Faith's birthday, which is September 26th. To date, the family has awarded more than 20 scholarships in Faith's name. I will have the link to the page for Faith Smile Scholarship in the description of this episode as well, so if you're interested in checking it out and interested in donating in her honor, you can do so. Also, since the trial has yet to happen, I will be sure to do a case update when all of this is finally said and done and comes to a close for her family. Faith Hedgepeth was a beautiful and vibrant 19-year-old who had so much life left to live. Her family feels a profound loss without her here, and while it's unfortunate this case was unsolved for so long, I am thankful and her family is thankful that Faith's killer is finally in custody. Crimeaholics, that is all of the information that I currently have on this case. Make sure that you are in our private Facebook group. You can find it by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, we share all pictures and information pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. Also, make sure you follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. And if you'd like more true crime content, you can follow me on TikTok at the same username of crimeaholics.podcast. Lastly, if you wish to follow myself personally, you can find me on Instagram at crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's murder case. Kenzie will be back Monday with another Missing Monday. If you're enjoying our podcast, please hit that subscribe button on your preferred podcast platform so that you're notified every single time a new episode goes live. Also, be sure to leave us a review if your podcast platform allows reviews. We love hearing feedback from you guys, and it always brightens our day when we see a five-star review with kind words. All right, guys, that's it for this episode. Everyone, you know what to do. Be aware and take care. Until next time, guys. Bye-bye.